so much. You can be seated. Thank you. Thanks, guys. You can be seated. And um, Pastor, thanks for the privilege of, of allowing me to be here. It means a lot. Um, a few weeks ago, you guys heard about the crisis in Africa, and I just want to honor you again for your generosity. Um, right before Christmas, I stood in the heart of the famine near the border in South Sudan. What I do at Convoy of Hope is everything we do outside of the United States long term, um, I'm accountable for that, so I get to serve that team. And so my travels uh, frequently take me to places where I will gaze into the eyes of war-shocked refugees and hold in my arms children who are starving and malnourished and come in contact with people who have absolutely no hope. Hope is a fundamental human right. Because God created us to know the God of hope. And right before the holidays, I stood in the epicenter of the famine. And the crisis that you likely don't hear about is very real. I was recently in a village where I was surrounded by children who had orange hair. And the reason they have orange hair is not because of a parasitic infection or a protein deficiency. It's because they're literally malnourished and they have a few weeks before they reach the point of no return. There are places in the world, many places, where children seldom, if ever, smile, and hopelessness is thick, and the burden is real, and it's in places like this where Jesus is building his church, and he's building his church through a simple idea called love. According to Matthew 24, we are living in an age where the love of most grows cold. That means love is a sign and a wonder again. And so I just want to honor you and thank you for your generosity and for your partnership. I stood in the heart of the famine, and I literally met a pastor. I won't say his name because I think this may be recorded. And some of the greatest work that God does across the earth, it's wise not to talk about it. A good friend of mine who lives in a sensitive country said, Heath, in the West, whenever Christians do something for God, they have to post it on social media. He said, in my part of the world, you can do more for God when no one knows you exist. And so I won't share his name, but he is on Sunday and Saturday, they have church services just like this, where you can feel Jesus dripping off the walls. But in the evenings, when everyone goes back to their straw and mud huts, the sanctuary sleeps children, 43 last I knew, children whose parents have either starved to death or been killed by radicals who weaponize food and water. And these are the places where, because of your partnership and your generosity, we are able to partner with God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and watch the church of Jesus Christ do what she does, which is to love people in his name. So thank you. Thank you for helping us feed children who are malnourished, who are on the brink of significant hunger and disease, we don't just feed them physically, we feed them spiritually, and we couldn't do it without you. So it's an honor to be here. So if you uh, grab your iPhone, your Droid, Galaxy, iPad, whatever, or your Bible, and let's go to number six. And uh, I won't talk to you long tonight, and I mean that. I, I, there's no way I'll, I'll take up all of the time. But what I'd like to do is just walk you through a thought of what happens when God draws near to you. 
what we do, what we see all the way at the beginning of the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God spoke. And we see that God's voice shapes galaxies. But when God created humanity, God did not speak. Rather, God scooped up a mound of dirt and breathed. So his voice causes planets to spin, but he reserved his breath for us. That means we were created for and formed by this thing called the breath of God. We were created to be face-to-face with him. And there is a place before the face of God where if we slow down long enough and if we gaze into his eyes, we can catch a reflection of who we really are. And that reality, the reality of, of God in our life, is not reserved just for a few because the Bible's clear God does not show favoritism. Because at the end of the day, each one of us are as close to Jesus as we want to be. So when you look in Scripture, you'll see that there are these, these clues, these, these breadcrumbs that God sprinkles along the path to help us on our way. Uh, these instructions that Scripture gives us to help us in our pursuit if our heart is willing. Uh, verses like Hebrews 11, verse 6, it says, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So, first, God is a rewarder. So, our pursuit is never in vain. We reap what we sow, and that's not just true for the wicked things we do. It's true for the holy pursuit that we have. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So if we seek him, we will find him. How many of you know we, seek, we find what we seek, right? But he's not just a rewarder of those who seek him. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. What does it look like to diligently seek him? It means you get up in the morning and you spend time with God. Somewhere along the line, we got this thing, and I'm not picking on the West. I'm thankful for the West. I'm thankful for the freedoms we have. But this thing crept in that said, if you just try spending five minutes a day with God, well, try that with your spouse, right? I'll, I'll try to be faithful with, to you. It doesn't work. So for some reason, no one trains for the Olympics, and they try it out five minutes a day. I'm not trying to be mean because the reality is, is I'm on this, we're all on the same pursuit, right? None of us is perfect. It's all by grace through faith so that no one can boast. But there is something about diligently seeking him. It means we, we seek him. So before we spend 45 minutes and look at the scores, we seek him. Or maybe you can't do it in the morning. Maybe you, for, for whatever reason, that's fine. Before you go to bed, you, you spend time with him. Or maybe if you can't do it in the morning or at night because of your reality, it's fine. You can do it on your coffee break or on your lunch break or whatever. But it's not while you're putting on your blush in the car looking in the rearview mirror while you're going down the road. 
So there's something about God being a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The diligent search is not striving, but the diligence in our search is evidence of how passionate we really are. So another example would be Jeremiah 33, verse 3. So not only is God a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, I'm talking about the reality of God in our life. The reality of God can come when we diligently seek him. Another way is um, through a lifestyle of prayer. One of the promises we have, Jeremiah 33, verse 3, call to me. So God invites us, call to me and I will answer you. And I will show you great and mighty works that you do not know. So that means God doesn't just answer our prayers. He shows us the answers to our prayers. He shows us great and mighty things. So there are some things, some answers that will never come, and some things that we never see if unless we first ask. How many of you know there are some things that are predestined to happen only in response to our prayer. And then there are other things that are predestined to happen no matter how hard you pray. How do you know that? Let's look at the book of Esther. Help will come for them, but who knows that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What is Mordecai saying? He's saying God's going to deliver his people. You can choose to be part of it or not, but either way, God's going to deliver them what are you going to do? As a new Christian, I remember thinking, I could just end all of the problems if Satan would just get saved. <laughs> so for months, I mean for months, I prayed fervently for Lucifer to repent and to become a Christian. How many of you know that won't happen? Because it's written in Scripture, right? So that would be an example. There are some things that no matter how hard you pray, they are predestined to happen. Don't let your, your Calvinistic, non-Calvinistic mind go wild here because we're all heretics to some degree. What I am saying, though, is that there is this realm that will not be inherited unless we pray. Call to me, and I will answer you. Another one would be James 4. I think it's verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. What does it look like to draw near to God? It looks like, let's say in the morning, I get up, and I'm going to diligently seek him. Before I touch my phone, before I check email, before I do whatever it is I'm going to do, I'm going to diligently seek him. And then I get up, and I realize I just read 14 chapters out of the book of Leviticus, and I have no idea what I just read. And it's not God's fault. I was distracted. So when you draw near to God, it looks like, you know what? I just read my 14 chapters, but I'm going to sit back down and reread them because I didn't encounter him. Drawing near to God is a heart posture. It's not about every day at 6 in the morning I get up and I do this. It's different. God honors discipline. God honors rhythm. But God also honors the posture of the human heart. So if you're walking through Walmart and you just think, I wonder if he wants to say something to me right now. You just bend your heart in his direction, right? Those would be some examples of how we can experience or know the reality of God in our life. We diligently seek him. We live lives of prayer. We draw near to God, and he draws near to us. 
And all of these things are good. I think we need to do them, like for the rest of our life. Let's diligently seek God. Let's pray. Let's draw near to God. Let's do everything we can. Live a lifestyle of just studying and eating and digesting Scripture and everything else. But I'm also learning that there are times when we pursue God, but there are also moments when God pursues us. And that's what I want to talk to you about briefly. I want to talk to you about creating an environment in your heart that magnetizes the environment to where God pursues you. The Bible says in Isaiah 57, verse 15, it says, I, the Lord, dwell in the high and lofty place, and with him, and I will add her, who is humble. God dwells with the humble. You can ask... been married to my wife, Allie, for 26 years. We've got two daughters in their 20s. You can ask them, when humility is absent from Heath's life, God's presence is too. The Bible says God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Sometimes we rebuke the evil one when it's God opposing us because of pride. God will stand in front of us. I know he's done it to me. He will stand in front of us and oppose us. And it's not the evil one. It's God. He opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Remember the verse, 2 Chronicles 7.14, after a two-week long religious festival of dedication of Solomon's temple, a festival that was... Decent, produced some good outcomes, like the presence of God was so strong, everybody fell down. They couldn't move. I mean, something happened. After two weeks of all that, God shows up and says, if my people who are called by my name, remember that name, if they will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways then. What's he saying? He's saying it's you got to seek his face, you've got to pray, you've got to repent, but there's something about humbling yourself too. God says, I dwell with those who are humble. God will pull up a stool and sit down in your home, in your office, in your car, if he finds humility. So what I'm learning On this journey, I'm 46, what I'm learning is the pursuit is good. Let's draw near to God. Let's call out to God in prayer. Let's diligently seek him. But it's important to also foster an environment of humility. And there have been many times I've blown that. But when God finds humility, the reality of God's presence in our life is unmistakable. The Bible says in Numbers chapter 6 this, starting in verse 22. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. So if you read the context, this is not in response to 40 days of fasting and prayer. God just seems to get this random idea. And he says to Moses, 
to speak to Aaron and his sons to say to the people. So why doesn't God just bless the people? Why does God speak to Moses to speak to Aaron and his sons to speak to the people? Because God works through people, right? God seems to just get this idea. And when you read this, this is what it looks like for God to draw near to you. I talked about your pursuit. Tonight I want to talk to you about his pursuit of you. When God draws near to you to bless you, says the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you peace. It says, may the Lord bless you. In your Bible, it may be capital L, lowercase o-r-d, or it may be all capitals. If it's capital L, lowercase, then the word is Adonai. If it's all capitals, the word is Yahweh. The most ancient manuscripts in the Hebrew text do not have Adonai. They have Yahweh. Yahweh is what's called the ineffable name. It is the name of God that they were not supposed to speak. They could say Adonai, they could say Elohim, they could say Hashem, but they were not supposed to say Yahweh. It is the ineffable name, Y-H-W-H or J-H-V-H. There were no vowels in the name because in history they stopped speaking the name. Not only do we really not know what God looks like, we really don't know how to say his name. His name was so holy, they, they stopped saying it, except once a year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and do what he needed to do to make atonement for the sins of the people. The name that was so holy that they weren't supposed to speak, God says, I want you to speak my name. To know the name of God is perhaps one of the most remarkable privileges we have in life. To even be able to call out to God and know his name, Jesus. Jesus is not the preferred way. He is not the most relevant way. He is not the Republican way, the Libertarian way, the Green Party way, or the Democratic Party way. He is not the easy way. He is not the American way. He's the way. That's what he said. To know his name is a privilege. To take the Lord's name in vain is so much deeper than vulgarity. It means to ascribe things to God or those made in his image that are contrary to his character. Whenever I've lost my temper against someone and verbally accosted them, I have taken the Lord's name in vain. The consummation of the blessing in verse 27 is not that they will have a billion dollars in their bank account. It is not that angels will tuck them in bed at night. It is that God will put his name on them. It's almost like God is saying, if you won't speak my name, I'll put my name on you. After all, I would rather have people see my name than hear my name any day. The name of God being placed upon you is the consummation of this blessing. 
May the Lord bless you. That word bless in Hebrew is barak. It is in what's called the pile form. I remember coming, I've come before many chiefs on the continent of Africa because of the work I do. When you come before a chief, what you're supposed to do is bow your head. You never look a chief, especially a Maasai chief, in the eyes. You, you bow your head. The chief never gets off of his chair or his throne, ever. When you bless someone in the pile form, which is what's found in number six, may the Lord bless you, it is inverted. This is the picture that the king gets up off of his throne. And before the lowly subject can approach the throne, the king gets up off of his throne and approaches the lowly subject and bows down in front of the lowly one, and the king extends gifts. This is imagery for why the Bible says it is God's kindness that leads you to repentance. Because the king of kings bows before those he died for, and he offers them the gift of salvation. It's what C.S. Lewis said. When C.S. Lewis put it this way, he said, God conquers us with his love. Jonathan Edwards said, God, being infinitely great, is as high above kings as he is beggars. What are they saying? They're saying that there is this king who sits on a throne, who presides over the kingdom of God all throughout the universe, and according to number six, the Lord himself, to bless you, does not wait for you to walk down the aisle to his throne. He gets up off of his throne and bows before you and extends the gift. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The word keep is, in Hebrew, an animal husbandry term. If you want to fact check me, it's called shamar. If you go to the Masimara tribe in remote parts of Africa, this is what they do at night. Maybe you've seen it on TV before, but it's real. It actually happens. They, they take their animals, their livestock, and at night, as the sun begins to set over the great plains of Africa, knowing that the lions and the hyenas and other predators will come out, and that their livestock, their beef cattle, that provides sustenance for the village, it's on the dinner menu for the predators. And what they will do is they take thorns and they build a wall of thorns around their livestock. And if you're inside the wall of thorns, I've seen these before, these corrals. If you're inside the wall, you can look through them. They are far from impenetrable. They, they are not stone walls. Just imagine at night seeing the moonlight reflect off of the eyes of the lion or the hyena. Walking around looking at you. Looking at your livestock. But they will not penetrate the wall of thorns. So when the Bible talks about your enemy prowling around like a roaring lion, the imagery from number six is this, that God gets up off of his throne and he bows before those he died for. May the Lord bless you and keep you. He wraps his arms around you like a wall of thorns. And your enemy may prowl around you like a roaring lion, but just because you can see him doesn't mean he can reach you. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you.
Ancient Hebrews taught that the greatest consequence to sin was the hidden face of God. In Hebrew, it's plural. It's actually faces. May God cause his faces to shine upon you. To the anxious heart, God turns his calming face toward you. To the rebellious heart, God turns his firm but loving face toward you. To those steeped in shame, he turns his forgiving face. To those needing direction and guidance for a major decision, he turns his assuring face. The word is plural. God can have more than one expression on his face at the same time. What I'm learning is that often God does not guide us with a word. He will guide us with a glance. Where we are before his face, which way do I go, Lord? Do I go left or right? The Bible says that God confides in those who fear him. There are some things that come from the heart of the Father that have no volume to them. They only come with his glance. They only come to those who will live before his face. And coming before his face does not happen after 50 years of striving. Coming before his face happens, yes, when we diligently seek him and when we pray and when we draw near, but we come before his face when we humble ourselves. Because God dwells in the high and lofty place, but he also dwells with the humble in heart. And when God comes to dwell, what does he do? He gets up off of his throne and he dwells first by bowing and then wrapping his arms around you and he turns his faces toward you. We don't just want God to turn his face towards us. We want his face to shine. That word shine, it's the same word used in Genesis 1 where in the Hebrew Bible there is one word, or. In our English Bibles it says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. But in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew there's just one word, or. Like light, just light. And there's instantaneous spontaneous, combustible power that somehow causes God to separate the light from the darkness and whatever happened, happened. Just with a word. The shining face of God is the same thing. That the power that was there in the beginning when God separates light from darkness, the one who dwells in inapproachable light in whom there's no shadow of turning, that same Power and light is there when he turns his face toward you. Aren't you glad that when the one who knows everything about us, he knows everything about us, and he bows before you and he looks you right in the eyes, and his eyes burn with fire. That's what it says in the scriptures, in, in the book of Revelation. His eyes burn with fire, and he's looking at us, and you'll net and it does and You'll never see the look in his eyes 
that says, I'm through with you. Not on this side of eternity. When we humble ourselves, because you won't humble yourself if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's just a fact. But when you humble yourself and you come before him, he, he looks you in the eyes. He knows everything about you, but his face shines. He causes his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you peace. What does it mean to lift up his countenance upon you? The language, for the sake of time, I won't get into it, but the language really, if you want to see what you're reading, and we, we do this today, right? We don't just like to read. We like to see what we read. When someone you love sends you a text message, will you stop at the store and pick up celery? There is a big difference between will you stop, up, stop at the store and pick up celery and will you stop at the store and pick up celery, red heart. <laughs> or smiley face with kissy emoji, right? We don't just like to read it. We like to see what we're reading. In the Hebrew scriptures, there's significant imagery to what you read. So when it says the Lord lifts up his countenance upon you, it's language that can literally describe the way an elderly man would interact with a, with a child. And all of you do this. You come in contact with the little one, the little one you love, whether it's your child, your grandchild, niece, nephew, foster child, child in the neighborhood, whatever. And they come running up to you. What do you do? You don't stand over them, lord it over them, and look down at them like they're a cockroach. What you do is you scoop them up and you pick them up and lift them over your head, don't you? And then the really crazy grandparents toss the child in the air. And the child isn't wearing a helmet. <laughs> and the child's going to be okay, right? When it says, may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, literally, it's the one who gets up and bows, extends gifts. Then he looks at you. He wraps his arms around you. His face shines. And then he lifts up his countenance upon you. And when you lift a baby up in the air, what happens to the baby's face? Gravity pulls the gaze of the child down, right? The child will look you in the eyes. He lifts his countenance upon you so that you will gaze upon him again. And that's where he grants us peace, shalom. And you know that that word peace is so much richer and deeper than the absence of violence and the absence of war. I like the way Dallas Willard put it. He said, the shalom of heaven is not just the absence of war. It is living in an environment that makes war unthinkable. 
or it is living in an environment that is so rich in God it makes illness and sickness unthinkable. Or it is living in an environment so rich in God it makes depression unthinkable, addiction unthinkable, the shalom of heaven. So tonight, what we're going to do, this is the beginning of your focus. You've set apart time tonight, not just to diligently seek him, and to draw near to him and to call out to him, but you've humbled yourself. You've humbled yourself by being here. But for those of you who are watching online or listening online, you've humbled yourself. You've said, I could do anything right now with my time, but I want to know God more. So you've, for the most part, if that's true of you, you have humbled yourself. And the Lord dwells with those who are humble in heart. So just in this moment, right where you're at, perhaps you need to just humble yourself before God. tonight you need to humble yourself and actually make Jesus the Lord of your life his answer is yes do not look the king of kings in the face the one who bows before you and say no thank you if tonight you need to humble yourself and make things right with Jesus? His answer is yes. If tonight you need to humble yourself because you realize without him, I am nothing. All this is nothing. God, I want to know you even more. I love you. I need you. Lord, please, I don't deserve for you to get up off of your throne and extend to me the gift of salvation. I don't deserve that. But tonight, the Lord knowing that you don't deserve that, that's just who he is. If tonight you need to make things right with Jesus, I'm going to ask you to humble yourself boldly and publicly. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes because... For those of you who respond, you may be the only one. And you need to know when you walk out of here that you did it for the right reasons. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to call you forward. I'm not going to ask you to stand. And it's not because I'm afraid to embarrass you at all. When I responded, I was the only one and I did it publicly and I'm glad. It's not about that. It's so that you, before the Lord, will just humble yourself before the music really kicks in, before we really start to feel what, what we think we can feel when we're around him, just for you to just, before the Lord, who bows before you, to humble yourself and say, God, I don't know you. 
I want to know you, Jesus. That's you. I'm going to ask you to be bold and look me right in the eyes. I'm going to start over here to my right. and Maybe slip your hand up halfway since it's dark. If you're slipping your hand up maybe halfway and you're looking me in the eye, keep it up so that I can see. You're saying, I need Jesus to change my life. I'm not asking you to start coming to church. I'm not asking you if you've been water baptized. I'm not asking if you need to finish your catechism or confirmation classes tonight. This is about, I don't know Jesus. I need to surrender my life to Jesus. And I'm not going to add Jesus to my life. I'm going to die to myself and surrender it all. That's why you're lifting your hand and you're looking at me. Over here to my right. You may be the only one. It's a good move. It's a good choice. It's a good choice. You're doing this to the Lord, not to me. I mean, what I think means absolutely nothing. I can't do anything to help you. can't even help myself. But we need Jesus. It's a good, it's a good move. It takes courage. Yes. Yes. Right here. Way to go. Yeah. Way to go. What's beautiful about this is the Lord sees. That's all that matters. But I see you too. It takes courage to humble yourself and acknowledge that's me. To actually, to someone else, say, Jesus, I need you. It takes boldness. Okay, anyone else? Quite a few of you. Okay. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. And here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to bless you. just going to bless you with the words in number six. And as you humble yourself before the Lord, the Lord will come and dwell with you. And you can respond however you want. You can respond by coming forward. You can stand. You can kneel. But I'm asking you to respond. Not to me, but to the Lord. I'm going to bless you And the shalom of heaven is going to invade this room. And God is going to put his name on those situations in your life that are contrary to his promise and his kingdom. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And all heaven can break loose simply by humbling ourselves and God coming to dwell. Okay? May the Lord bless you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and 
grant you peace. In a moment, we're going to diligently seek, we're going to call out, and we're going to draw near because we are all as close to God as we want to be. But before we do that, let God do his thing and come and dwell with you right where you are before you pursue him. So, Lord, we just direct our gaze toward you. We fix our eyes on you, Lord. And I ask you to come and dwell among your sons and daughters.